Just a quick note on the fact that we are going back to uh, passing the offering bags. This is not a pragmatic decision. Frankly, when we stopped passing the offering bags, you guys gave more than ever. So a little bit of hesitance on our part. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of a thing. But it's a theological decision. I know we had a lot of fear about germs and those were legitimate fears and, and I understand that and we don't, uh, we don't make fun of anybody for that sort of caution. But scripturally speaking, giving to the Lord is not something you do before or after worship. Giving is something you do while you worship. It is an act of worship. Um, you want to continue giving online? That's wonderful. That's great. You, you would prefer to give in the box? That's fine as well. But ultimately... Theologically, worship costs. First of all, it costs the Lord Jesus Christ his life for you to be able to approach God with purity and with holiness. And it costs us. Being a Christian is not free. Salvation is free. Being a Christian is not free. It costs us everything. Jesus said that if you would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, meaning sacrifice everything and follow me. And so there is just something different to taking that that which you have made with your hard-earned time and giving it to the Lord even as you sing unto him. And so that's why we're resuming. It is not a pragmatic decision. It is a theological decision. Um, But we'll we'll take your gifts however you want to give them. But we want you to have the opportunity to give in a way that is um, probably the, the most pure as far as following after the example of Scripture. So just a little uh, philosophy of ministry note there for us to understand together. But let's go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. While you're finding that, the topic of leadership in the church today is really one of the hottest and most volatile topics being debated in that uh, great bastion of theological thought, social media. For example, with the advent of Beth Moore proclaiming herself to be a pastoral authority, preaching in the pulpits of once conservative churches, and claiming to speak for God, Beth Moore, along with many others, have really lit a flame once again for the passionate defense of egalitarianism. The belief that God has called both men and women to the ministry of leadership in the church. And yet, once again, as always, this is just a tag-along to the non-believing culture which wants to remake the church in the image of the world. This is people in the church trying to become like the world instead of trying to get the world to become like Christ. The usual arguments persist. Some would say, well, what about women missionaries with no qualified men around them? Others would say, what about single women with no husband to submit to? And still others would say, well, what about women pastors who are so compassionate and kind and and good preachers? Well, the problem is that all of those arguments are arguments from experience. And we don't form our theology and practice based on experience. We form our theology strictly from the word of God. And so confusion seems to reign in place of a settled understanding of God's never-changing design for Christ's church and for her leadership. Now, last week we introduced just at a light level our series, The Church's Shepherds. And I told you we would be using 1 Timothy 3.1 as our home base for about 10 messages. And then we're going to go into the qualifications of leadership found in verses 2 through 7. 
And by the time we get to those, they're going to seem almost intuitive. And we'll spend a few messages there, but by the time we get there, they'll make total sense. And it will seem like, well, of course, these are the qualifications of a leader in the church. And so let's use this as our home base. First Timothy three, verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, last week we focused on the phrase, a noble task. Today, I'd like to address the fact that this verse speaks to the office. It is an office. This is the Greek word, episkope, and it usually uses, uh, is used to translate as one of the elders, one of the overseers. In this particular case, in its feminine form, it's meant to talk about the office itself. It is a position, and by implication, it is an appointed position. It is not a self-appointed position. Somebody doesn't wake up one day and say, I have appointed myself to the office of overseer. It's not self-appointed. So what is this office? I'd like to spend today looking at this. We need to continue laying down a foundation that will be very, very solid for our entire church to get us all on the same page. And so similar to the series I just did on the Holy Spirit recently, for many of you, Today may, may seem like basic information that isn't uh, new to you. But for some of you, this is going to be groundbreaking, and I hope it'll be uh, helpful to you. So in fact, uh, the title of my message today is The Basics About Shepherds. And so we're just laying this basic foundation, and sort of like last time, we're going to organize our thoughts by answering and, or by asking and answering four questions. We'll cover a lot of scripture today, so probably your best bet is to note the references rather than trying to keep up. So here's our four questions, and I'll repeat them a lot. Who are the shepherds? What are the shepherds called? How are shepherds organized? And why are shepherds necessary? So we're going to look at who are the shepherds? What are the shepherds called? How are shepherds organized? And why are shepherds necessary? Just to cover kind of the four corners of of this foundation. So the first question, who are the shepherds? I'll give you a short answer to each of these questions. Who are the shepherds? The short answer is shepherds are qualified men. Shepherds are qualified men. Men, not as in people, men as in males. Now we'll hit on the question of qualifications throughout many of these messages and the last three in particular, as I mentioned, will be exclusively on qualifications. But just a couple of comments here, first of all. Verse two says, therefore an overseer must be And then there's a bunch of qualifications. So what does that stipulation follow? It follows, he desires a noble task. So verse 2 makes it clear that desire is only the first step, but desire alone is not a qualification. Men are not self-qualifying. They don't make this determination about themselves. The only determination they can make about themselves is the desire part. But the determination as to whether or not somebody fits these qualifications is made by other men who have already themselves been qualified for the gospel ministry. 1 Timothy 5 verse 22 calls this the laying on of hands, the public recognition that a man has been qualified by others. And what does this qualification entail? Well, primarily it entails having one's life and one's ability observed for a long period of time. It means training and testing uh, and, and understanding the work of the ministry. I, I said this to somebody this morning. This is why the best preachers have gray hair and a limp because they've been through life and they've been through years and years of study and training. 
It's like the church that said, we, we want a new pastor. We want him to be 35 years old and with 25 years experience. You can have it one way or the other, but you can't have both. At Grace Bible Church, we've ordained several men vocationally to the gospel ministry, including one of our own missionaries. But this is only after extensive training, extensive testing, writing, questioning. We put them through a grueling process. Why? Because they're going to be leading the people of God. We've also qualified new lay elders, again, after extensive testing and writing and questioning. Being a shepherd in the church is not a good old boys club. It is not a who's friends with the pastor, and it's certainly not who gives a lot of money to the church. That does not qualify you. Quite honestly, that's just a prerequisite that you're faithful in all things. I got to tell you, one of the hardest things I ever have to do as a pastor is to tell a man that I love that he's useful to the church, but not as an elder. That's a hard thing to do. There is a particular gifting, a particular bent toward eldership that, that can't be ignored, nor can it be faked. And desire is not enough. There has to be gifting. There has to be ability. There has to be training. There has to be testing. There has to be approval. And so shepherds are qualified men. Now, I want to focus on the men part. And I know that I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but we want to establish this very, very uh, solidly. We want to form a solid biblical argument, so I'm going to camp out here for just a little while. First of all, what are we not asserting? Well, a few things. We're not asserting that men are shepherds because they are inherently more capable. Scripture does not say that. I've been in more than one elders meeting where we have lamented, man, if we just had one woman in here, we might get more stuff done. And then we repent and say, okay, this is, this is God's plan. Rather, in the series we did uh, recently on the godly women of the church, we've noted that there is a creation order. There's a creation order. Look back just a, a, a little bit in 1 Timothy 2, just a few verses up. Verse 13, 1 Timothy 2, verse 13, here's the creation order. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Why? Because that was God's plan. It was always God's plan. And so we're not asserting that men are shepherds because they're inherently more capable. I've been in elders meetings where we have, we have completely denied that we are more capable. We know this. The second thing we're not asserting, we're not asserting that men are more important in the church than women. Scripture doesn't say that. This is like a marriage. It takes both genders to make the whole function as it should. But one shouldn't covet the role in the position of the other. There are definite roles here. The, the women of the church are a treasure, they're a delight, they're a joy, but they are not men. And one more thing we're not asserting, we're not asserting a man-made discrimination position. We're not asserting a man-made discrimination or discriminatory position. We're asserting a heaven-made position. A heaven-made position that God has very clearly stated. This isn't somehow just yet another dehumanizing of women which sinners have perpetrated going all the way back to the book of Genesis. The cruel and degrading treatment of women throughout history, it's not what any God-honoring believer in Christ wants. No one wants that. Women are equally created in the image of God and as men, we're called to be tender and kind and protective. But manhood and womanhood are clear distinct biblical roles they have different roles different dispositions and yet totally equal in worth before god and so we want to just make it very clear the things we're not saying 
What I'd like to do, though, now is give you some solid biblical evidence that shepherds in the church are qualified men with spiritual authority. I'm going to give you five lines of evidence. We want to just nail this down so there's no question whatsoever. The first line of evidence we'll call the apostolic evidence. The apostolic evidence. Matthew 10, verses 1 through 4. Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So the first spiritual leaders who in turn would lead the church of Jesus Christ after the ascension of Christ, all of them are men. Now you notice that Judas, of course, is going to be excluded after the ascension of Jesus. The disciples would pray for a replacement, and this replacement would either be a man named Justice or a man named Matthias, both men, and Matthias, of course, was chosen in Acts 1. Now, if there was ever a time to assert female spiritual leadership into the church, It would have been either when Jesus chose the 12 or when the replacement for Judas was chosen. That would have been the logical time. And this will always be the case. Uh, Male leadership is not somehow a result of sin, as some have said. Male leadership will always be the case. Jesus told the 12 men in Matthew 19, 28, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this would be a completely different conversation if we had six male apostles and six female apostles. That was never the case. And so we have the, that first bit of evidence. The second evidence we'll call the early church evidence. First, the apostolic evidence. And the second, the early church evidence. 1 Timothy 4.14, Timothy had been ordained by a group of elders, masculine form of this word, men. 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders, masculine form, are men who labor at preaching and teaching. Titus 1.5, Paul told Titus that while Titus was in Crete, he was to appoint elders, masculine men, to be over the churches. The pastors of the seven churches in Asia, Asia Minor, in Revelation 2 and 3, they're called angels, which this is a, a legitimate use of the Greek word angelos, which means can mean a human messenger. But it's all masculine. They're all male. Elders, overseer, pastor, or most often translated shepherd in the English Standard Version. They're always, every single time, masculine nouns in the New Testament when speaking of the person who's holding the office. Every single elder named by name in the New Testament, whether it's elders who are faithful like Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius of the church at Antioch in Acts 13, or unfaithful elders such as Hymenaeus and Alexander and Philetus who were unfaithful in the church at Ephesus, all of them are men. In fact, you cannot find one single example specifically or even generally of a woman acting in the role of an elder or spiritual leader over men. There's a third bit of evidence we'll call the historical evidence. The historical evidence. Every writer of scripture is a man. This is important because God designed spiritual leadership to come from men. If even one Bible book was written by a a woman, it would open the floodgates of confusion. Every prophet commissioned by God 
to represent him authoritatively in the Old Testament was a man. Every priest in the Old Testament was a man. Now, I'm going to take a little digression here for a moment because there is an argument um, put out by egalitarians to say, no, there are prophets in the Bible that are women. That is true. So we're going to go through all of them. Let's just take a moment. There are five women in the Old Testament labeled prophetess. There is Miriam, Exodus 15, 20. She is the sister of Moses. What was her role? If you read, uh, read contextually, her role was to lead the women of Israel spiritually. Just like Titus 2 says, older women are to teach the younger women. So that's not the whole nation. That's not spiritual leadership over men. There is Deborah in Judges 4. But her role was much more of a political leader than a representative of God. And she functioned alongside a man named Barak, who was the commander of the army. Then you have Huldah in 2 Kings 22, verse 14. She gives one message to the king of Israel from God. And you can't extrapolate that to suddenly mean that women are ordained to the gospel ministry as a matter of routine. That's a, a, a classic example of the difference between description and prescription in the Bible. Then you have a woman named Noadiah in Nehemiah 6, verse 14. I actually read an entire article about Noadiah and how she's an example of the fact that we should have women leaders in the church. Well, the problem with Noadiah is that she was, A, self-appointed, and B, opposing the plan of God. She was actually a false prophetess. And then you have a woman simply called the prophetess in Isaiah 8, 3. Who is that? Almost certainly that was Isaiah's wife. That's like saying the pastor's wife. It's not the pastor's, it's the pastor's wife. So we can mark all five off in the Old Testament. What about in the New Testament? Well, you have Anna in Luke 2.36. She's called a prophetess, but in no way is she leading the people of God. She is an older woman who's simply waiting for Christ and speaking to anyone who will listen to her about Christ. She would, quote, speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. And so for Anna, the role of prophetess simply meant she was proclaiming the truth of the coming of Messiah. Not a role of spiritual leadership and certainly not a role of authority. And then you have Philip's daughters in Acts 21.9. Four daughters that the text just says who prophesied. But we have to remember that in the early church, before the completion of a written New Testament, the Lord spoke temporarily through men and women. They were messengers only. They were not authorities in the church. They were just messengers. They weren't the preachers to insist on obedience that the word was spoken. And so none of these so-called exceptions point us anywhere near whatsoever a, a policy of naming women to posts of spiritual authority over the church of Jesus Christ. Now, to be very fair, and it's important to try to look at both sides fairly, there's a classic argument against the historical evidence in Scripture. Here's how this argument goes. It says this, Well, all of that just proves that the Bible is a very male and patriarchal book. Again, that just proves that the Bible is a very male and patriarchal book. I actually love that argument because they, they step in their own trap. And here's what it is. If you say, well, that just proves that the Bible is a very male and patriarchal book. Now you're denigrating the Bible and putting it down as worthy of being authoritative. So you've marked the Bible off as an authority. 
And yet the very same people then try to use Scripture authoritatively by pointing to those few examples I gave or trying to use New Testament examples of godly women as being evidence of authority. So which is it? Which one do you want? Do you submit to the Bible written as is by the Holy Spirit, amazingly, without need of human editing? Or do you cast dispersions on, on Scripture as unauthoritative because it's so heavily patriarchal? Logically, you can't have it both ways. If you say, well, I believe that the Bible is authoritative, then you believe what it says. Is the Bible patriarchal? Absolutely. Put that in all caps. In the Old Testament, there are 1,426 people given names. They're named by name. 111 of them are women. In the New Testament, the proportion is slightly higher, but not much. Is the Bible patriarchal in terms of leadership? Absolutely. Why? Because that's God's design. And if you don't like that, then you take that up with God and you face him and say, your design is stupid. It doesn't make sense to me. And you tell him that. And either you must submit to the, to the word of God because it is the word of God or reject the Bible as the word of God, which then leaves you with no divine authority whatsoever. Where do egalitarians get their authority? Not ultimately from scripture. They try to point to the culture. They try to point to experience. Neither of those are authoritative. And then you have the marriage evidence. The marriage evidence. The New Testament is absolutely clear about male leadership in the home. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Titus 2.5, a woman is to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so if marriage, which is said by Paul in Ephesians 5.32 to be a picture of Christ and the church, If marriage is characterized by male leadership going all the way back to the created order in which Adam was formed first, why would God have a different design for the church? Why would he do that? And as a matter of fact, a woman elder would be in the position of submitting to her husband at home and being in authority over him in the church. That doesn't make any sense. How do you work that out? Okay, honey, on the way home, as soon as we pass uh, Elm Street, now you're in charge again. That makes no sense whatsoever. Hang on, we got to make a U-turn. We got to put you under church discipline, but I can't do it because we're on the wrong side of the street. It's illogical. Now, I've given you these four areas of evidence. We haven't even gotten to the direct commands of Scripture yet. Those are the easiest ones. We could have skipped all that and just done this, but I just wanted to nail this down. One more, the command evidence. The command evidence. Look again at 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. How do you get more clear than this? I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, I covered this in detail in our last series on the godly women of the church. It doesn't mean literally to be silent. This means in the church not asserting yourself authoritatively and so forth. I spent a long time on that. But suffice to say, this is based on the created order, again, from verse 13. It's not some sort of cultural exception for the church at Ephesus, which is the concern here in 1 Timothy. In fact, just to be certain, this is not sort of some sort of exception just for the church at Ephesus. 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 33, says, As in all the churches of the saints, 
the women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. That answers the question. All the churches, from all eras, all places, all times. Here's another direct command. Titus 1.6 says that an elder is to be the husband of one wife. Literally in Greek, a one-woman man. Here in our text, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, exactly the same phrase. The husband of one wife, a one-woman man. Now, this phrasing is extremely important. The Holy Spirit doesn't just throw words on paper. The Holy Spirit is precise and perfect in his inspiration of the text. This is not a general statement about marriage. I've heard this said. Well, all this just says is that a leader in the church, whether a man or a woman, should be faithful in their marriage. That's not what this says. You can't say, well, that just means being faithful in the marriage, whether the elder is a woman or a man. Grammatically speaking, the two words, one woman, are modifiers to the subject of the clause, man. That is the subject. You can't generalize that. And in fact, the rest of the pronouns here in Titus, or in 1 Timothy 3, are masculine. Verse 4, he must manage. Verse 5, manage his household. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up. Verse 7, he must be well thought of so that he may not fall into disgrace. So I hope you see that scripture is abundantly clear on this. There's the apostolic evidence, the early church evidence, the historical evidence, the marriage evidence, the command evidence. All of these make it absolutely clear that male leadership in the church is God's design. Now, I, I know that this is something that can be viewed as being oppressive. Can I tell you this? You didn't come to the conclusion that that's oppressive on your own. You came to that conclusion based on what the world has told you. Because if you simply took Scripture at face value, the conclusion you would come to is that this is comforting. This is comforting. You know why this is comforting? You and I as Christians, we spend our whole life trying to determine God's will, don't we? We pray about things. We wonder, should I move here? Should I get this job? Should I do this? Should I marry this person? Should I not? What should I do? But this is plain as day. It is right before our noses. And so it gives us such comfort to know that we know that we know God's plan. And if you know what God's plan is, it makes sense. And it ought to give you comfort. Honestly, the pushback against this is really the belief that your plan is better than God's. There's no contentment, no joy, no delight in this. None at all. So who are the shepherds? They are qualified men. Let's keep going on these four corners here. A second question, as we remind ourselves of the basics, what are the shepherds called? What are the shepherds called? I need to get into the weeds of some details here, but again, we're just laying the foundation. I want to make sure we cover all these bases. Here's a short answer to what are the shepherds called. They're called elders, overseers, and pastors or shepherds. Pastors or shepherds are the same word, often translated differently. So elders, overseers, and pastors or shepherds. So let's go through these words. Elder, it's a word that you can, you can almost hear in English, presbuteros. It's used 70 times in the New Testament, almost 70 times. It can simply mean an older person. Uh, Presbuteros is used in 1 Peter 5.5 to speak of older men in the church in general. It's used in 1 Timothy 5.2 in the feminine form to speak of older women. But presbuteros was a very familiar term in the New Testament world. In the New Testament readers, they knew it meant a spiritual leader. That was very clear in their culture. 
and you hear the English word Presbyterian in this word. It just simply denotes the the form of church leadership. In fact, in the Presbyterian church, sometimes elders are called presbyters, that they're just simply elders. Peter wrote 1 Peter to all the churches scattered in Pontia, Uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And to all of them, he said in 1 Peter 5, 1, I exhort the elders, the presbyteros among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And so you have that general term that just has to do, generally speaking, with character and with age. Then you have the term overseers. If you still have a King James Version, Your version says bishops. And I'll explain why we don't use that anymore. But this is the word episkopos. You can hear episcopalian in there, can't you? But that, again, just denotes the form of church leadership. Episkopos isn't used nearly as much as presbuteros. It's only used five times in the New Testament. But it's used here in our text. Therefore, an overseer, episkopos, it's used in Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. The letter is addressed to all the saints and the overseers and the deacons. Titus 1.7, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Christ himself is called our episkopos, our overseer. In 1 Peter 2.25, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And I love how the word shepherd and overseer are put right together there with Christ. Paul warned the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 28. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. By the way, a little side note, who creates elders, who creates overseers? The Holy Spirit does. Now, why was the term bishop used in older translations, especially in the King James Version? Why is that? Well, it was actually a secular government term which was used to speak of an appointed leader over a city-state, somebody appointed by the emperor. Well, what do we think of when we think of bishop now? We think of a guy wearing the world's biggest Q-tip and in sort of uh, authority over other people in the church. We think of a church hierarchy. What do we think of? Well, we think of Roman Catholicism, don't we? And so we stay away from the term bishop now because the only people using the term bishop are uh, cultists like the Mormon church, uh, the Roman Catholic church, and people who self-appoint themselves as prosperity gospel preachers. They use the term bishop as well. So it's kind of been ruined for us, so we don't use that as much, but it's a good term. But it connotes this sort of hierarchy which is never intended. Our third term, pastors or shepherds, it's the Greek word poimen. Poimen is used 18 times in the New Testament. In fact, very often refers to Christ himself. Hebrews 13, 20, Christ is called the great shepherd, poimen, of the sheep. Jesus said this of himself in John 10, verse 14. He said, I am the good shepherd. And how did he define himself as a good shepherd? He said, I know my own and my own know me. There's a knowledge, there's a love relationship. Ephesians 4, 11, and he, that is Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, poimen, and teachers. And so there seems to be this connection with shepherding and teaching, feeding people, the feeding of the sheep, the feeding of the church. Now, in terms of who these men are, the elders, the overseers, the pastors or shepherds, this is very important. All those terms are interchangeable. They're interchangeable. An elder is an overseer, is a shepherd. There's not a hierarchy in terms of authority in the church. 
Now, there is a concept of a leader among equals, which we'll explore in more detail in a later message. But in terms of emphasis, these three terms are, are equal in authority and slightly different in shades of meaning. In fact, it just gives you three different viewpoints of the same office. Elder, presbuteros, emphasizes the character of a man. That generally speaking, if he's a little older, he's had time to develop Christ-likeness. Overseer, episkopos, emphasizes the work of the leader. And this is very important, and we've talked about this as in our group of elders, that episkopos has a very strong relationship with the idea of visiting, of having a relationship with the church. In other words, elders are not to be ivory tower decision makers. That's not who we're to be. In the New Testament church, there were very few examples of elders as decision makers. They were shepherds. They weren't. They didn't sit around in a, in a boardroom. They did things in the church. So the elder, presbuteros, the character of the man, overseer, episkopos, emphasizes the work of the man, and pastor or shepherd, poimen, emphasizes the work of feeding the people of God, of leading them to good pastures and to, to right teaching and to sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict it. And so really by putting together presbuteros and episkopos and poimen, you get a three-faceted, a three-dimensional picture of what a shepherd in the church is to be. Now, what about the fact that at Grace Bible Church we have elders and pastors? You might be saying, aha! Well, there is a functional distinction which we're going to spend time on in later messages. But in fact, if we're going to stay consistent, and, and we have stayed consistent, we consider our associate pastors as either elders in training or duly authorized representatives of the elders, such as Timothy was authorized, for example, by Paul. And so we are attempting to stay functional or to, to stay consistent with that. There is a distinction which I'll spend a lot more time on in another week. So let's do a third question. There are four corners here. How are the shepherds organized? How are the shepherds organized? The short answer, as a group. They're organized as a group or a little bit more precise as a plurality. The New Testament clearly shows the eldership working as a group. It's a group effort. Every single use of presbuteros, elder, in the New Testament is plural. There's only two exceptions when John calls himself an elder and Peter calls himself an elder. That makes sense. But every one of them is plural. And so there's an emphasis on group. The New Testament never mentions a, a one-pastor congregation. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't exist, especially in a developing church, such as the churches on Crete, but that's definitely not the norm, nor is it the long-term goal of a local church. I have the privilege and the opportunity to sometimes work with other local churches in other cities and states and, and come alongside them. And very often I've seen that uh, when one man plants a church and you fast forward eight or ten years and he's not yet raised up qualified men, that church has now become sickly. It's become unhealthy. And I always ask the same question. Well, why haven't you raised up men? You've had eight years. And the, question, the answer is always the same. Well, the right men haven't come along. You know what the answer is? Well, then train them to be the right men. But it doesn't work. It's unhealthy. It becomes lopsided. It becomes sickly. The churches of Revelation 2 and 3 are said to have one angel, a human messenger to the church. And I'll prove that's a human messenger to you in a later message. 
But that doesn't prove that the church is governed by a single elder. It's, it is evidence, though, for a leader among equals who's primarily responsible for the teaching and the content of discipleship. Here's a couple of examples. The island of Crete, Paul told Titus in Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. Now, what that may mean is one elder over individual groups that he's teaching in that city, but the church was always viewed as one local church with multiple branches, all under the same doctrine, all under the same authority. Very simple when the apostles were still alive because the apostles could come and say, all of you are under my authority as an apostle. We've lost that now, and why is that? We can't possibly link arms with other local churches which deny the biblical gospel or deny the, go- the, the doctrines of grace. We can't link arms with them. And so in our context, we would see our local church as its own independent entity with a plurality, a group of elders. And so there's the island of Crete as an example. We have the church at Antioch as recorded in Acts 13 as an example. They list their eldership. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manan, and Saul, or Paul, are listed as the elders of the church. Hebrews 13, 17 tells the church, obey your leaders, plural. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 says to respect and to esteem and to love those, plural, who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, I've had the privilege of being a part of a plurality of elders for many, many years. And there are some temptations that come with this. I will admit it. And so I'll tell you what they are. I want you to to be in on, on what happens in leadership. There's some temptations. There's the temptation to be a political or a corporate model of a voting body of men. That being an elder somehow is primarily made up of making a bunch of decisions. Elders are shepherds, not politicians. How horrible is it for a church to move forward on something and they say that the elders voted on this and it was three to two. What is that? That's disunity. That's not, that's political. That's not shepherding. We strive for total unity as much as we possibly can. And what that means is learning to defer to one another as much as we possibly can. There's another temptation. There's a temptation to see discussion as a means of forming a biblical position. That if you talk something out in a group setting, that that's going to form a biblical position. We're very clear that all ministries and all decisions must have a reasonable basis in Scripture and and not just by whistling up a couple of proof texts really quick to support something that's really just your personal preference. I mean, you can do that with anything. You can say, you know, the word drums doesn't occur in the book of Matthew, so we're not going to have drums in the church. That's just, uh, that's silly. An eldership can arrive at a unanimous decision and be unanimously wrong because you talked something out Just because discussion happened and that discussion steered the church in a certain direction, that's not guaranteeing a correct direction. Listen carefully. Discussion does not form a biblical position. Debate does not form a biblical position. Study forms a biblical position. That's one of the reasons for a leader among equals, which we'll go into in a few weeks. There's another temptation. Anyone who's ever been in leadership in the church has experienced this. And that is the temptation to mire the church in inaction. To mire the church in inaction. An eldership 
can become entrenched in talking everything to death and having to have every single decision together uh, go through the whole eldership together rather than deciding who's going to make the decision. You can take an hour to make one decision or you can take 15 seconds to decide who's going to make this decision. A congregation then suffers because of inaction or a gridlocked eldership and, uh, or one that's disorganized and that's aimless. I, again, I've had the privilege of working with different churches and it just saddens me to see a group of six or seven or eight men get together for four hours to come to one conclusion. We've decided that we need to have another meeting and that's it. You can't make every decision at the elder level. And ironically, the more you go down that road, you get much less done because elders end up talking everything to death. And so we work really hard in our, our eldership to make sure that if, that if you're an elder over a particular ministry, you own it. It's yours. You, you make it run. You make it go. If we don't trust you to do that, why are you an elder in the first place? And then there's one more temptation, the temptation to be busier with talking than with doing. The temptation to be busier with talking than with doing. Elders are to be workers. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13 says, those who labor among you, those who are doing the tasks involved with shepherding God's people, elders are to be disciple makers. They're to be pouring into the lives of others. Not just making decisions on behalf of others who are pouring their lives into others. No, we're to lead by example. And so there are some temptations, and I'm just being really transparent with you that it is not easy. What is an eldership? An eldership is a group of sinners who have all been qualified by other sinners. And so we have difficulties. But there are great advantages to this plurality. Great advantages. The first one is a division of duties. A division of duties. It's only because we have a plurality of elders that I'm able to devote 75 to 80% of my time to studying the word of God and presenting this to you. That's the only reason. And in the same way, because I'm covering the lion's share of that duty, so many other things can be covered by elder, other elders who in turn are utilizing the deacons, who in turn utilize all of you. And so the division of duties is such a joy in the church. This is a second advantage. We balance strengths and weaknesses. We balance strengths and weaknesses. All elders have areas that they're stronger in and weaker in. We recognize those strengths and weaknesses and we benefit from allocating responsibilities. It's, it's so very, very helpful. And I'll, I'll use myself as an example. Our elder slash executive pastor, Mark Harriger back there, we love him. He and I love working together because I like to fly at 30,000 feet and not think about details and he loves the details. When we start talking about details, I just start going out like this and and I just, I lose interest. And especially every year when we start talking about the budget, I just would rather jump off a cliff than talk about how much money are we going to give for tablecloths this year? I don't care. But Mark gets all excited because he has a spreadsheet and he fills those details in and it's a beautiful thing. And when I have details and need taken care of, he takes care of it. And among the elders, we know each other well and so we try to work as a synergistic unit and we find joy in this. We say, well, here's something that needs to be done. Who's going to do it? We pretty much know you're the right guy for the job. It's a joy and it's a delight. There's another advantage to the plurality, plurality and that is the restraint of pride. The restraint of pride. Solo pastors with no accountability can develop a disease called myself-itis. 
My selfitis is the uh, swelling of the ego of myself. It is based on one's continually unchallenged opinion. Because if every time you take a vote and there's only one person voting, you're always going to get your way. And that becomes a great, great temptation to pride. There's a fourth advantage, the, share of joy, uh, the, the joy of sharing uh, triumphs and sorrows together. The joy of sharing triumphs and sorrows together. You know, the bigger issues in the church are shared collectively by the elders and it's a joy and it is a help to be there with and for one another. Ministry is an absolute mercy of God. It is a tremendous joy. Second Corinthians 4, Paul calls this ministry a mercy of God. But it can be a heavy burden as well. And not even just the negative ministry situations, but just the thought that we're, we're shepherding the very eternal souls of men and women. This can feel a bit like what I would imagine a, a pilot's first solo flight feels like. I think you start off with a moment of, I'm flying a plane, followed by, I'm flying a plane. It is weighty. I said this last week, you know why this box is solid up here? So you can't see my knees shaking. Because... I am supposing to speak for God? No, that's a weighty thing. And so we share the triumphs and the joys together and you should pray for that. One more advantage. We have a treasure of collective wisdom. We have a treasure of collective wisdom. It is a tremendous dynamic to run an idea or a direction by all the elders and to get feedback or confirmation. We have elders on our eldership who have been working professionally and been Christians as long as I've been alive. And that is such an incredible treasure. Sometimes it helps you confirm this is a great direction to go because everybody has talked this through and we formed a a great thought. Or it can save you from a costly error because three or four other guys said, so what were you thinking when you came up with a stupid idea? And we say, thank you, Lord, for keeping this out of the congregation. And we just left it here. And then we uh, have to bribe one another to not say anything about it at that point. We don't want to be strictly pragmatic in our evaluation. But but can I tell you this? The Lord Jesus Christ gave us a plurality of elders. And it is absolute genius. The advantages far outweigh the temptation. Well, let's do one more question. Why are shepherds necessary? Why are shepherds necessary? I'll give you a short answer. And that is to feed and lead the people of God. To feed and lead the people of God. I've been concerned that we live in a soundbite generation which has bled over into the church. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that many believers in Christ are drawn to celebrity preachers who give good theological zingers. Who perhaps are so lofty and even speculative in their, in their preaching or writing that we're looking for this ooh and ah moment. We're looking for something that can be posted on Twitter instead of something that takes a long time to digest. Many are looking for these jaw-dropping statements or radical new thoughts about God stated in creative and never-before-heard ways. And some men, very few, are just naturally gifted at these theological soundbites or jaw-dropping statements. They're good at it. But I get concerned that the church is not as appreciative as they should be of the normal, faithful shepherd who is just simply plowing the ground of God's church week in and week out, explaining the word of God, maybe not with the zest and the zing that others have, and yet consistently feeding their people a steady diet of the Bible 
and the steady diet of Christ and the steady diet of sound doctrine. Now, I'll touch on this topic repeatedly and I'll, in fact, devote an entire message to the duties of the shepherds. But briefly, there's one passage that gives a very beautiful synopsis of the necessity of shepherds. And it shows the faithfulness, not so much of, of theological zinger statements or speculative nonsense, but the effectiveness of long-term, long-range duties of shepherds over a period of years. And so just for a moment, turn with me to Ephesians 4, and then we'll be done for this morning. We get such a beautiful synopsis of the necessity of shepherds. Now, Ephesians 4.11 tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to the church gifts of men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. I'm sure we'll return to this text in other messages, but I just want to highlight what the faithful, consistent ministry of all shepherds in the church is to look like. Why are shepherds necessary? Ephesians 4, verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, apostles and prophets. They've done their job. They're no longer with us. Why do we have evangelists? They're church planters, followed by shepherds, preachers and spiritual leaders and teachers. Why do we have them? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Wow. What are shepherds for? I'll just go through the list. They make you useful to the kingdom. They build you up spiritually. They unify you under sound doctrine. They proclaim Christ to you and how we need this every week. They exhort you to obedience. They keep you from spiritual harm. And what's the result in verse 16? It makes the body grow. First, the body grows in depth, then it grows in breadth. That's what happens. The bottom line is that shepherds are necessary because they're given by Christ himself to carry out the mission of Christ in the church, resulting in the growth of his kingdom, resulting in the growth of his citizenship. And listen, more ink than I could possibly talk about has been spilled over how do we evangelize the lost can i tell you what the church has done for 20 centuries here's how we've evangelized the lost it has been the faithful shepherding of the church that proclaims christ and the gospel and sends you out bursting at the seams with the truths of the doctrines of grace and you bring your friends and your family you say i've got to have you hear this you need to hear this truth and the faithful shepherds proclaim that God is holy and God is perfect and that mankind is sinful and you violated God's holiness at every turn. And we proclaim that the wages of sin is death and eternal judgment. That God has sent his one and only son to become sin on behalf of all who would repent and place their faith in Christ. And by having Christ willingly die on a cross as payment for my sin and that now by the resurrection of Christ, that payment for my sin is shown to be absolutely complete. I'm guaranteed new resurrection life that even as Christ died and rose again, 
so also will all who place their full trust and faith in him. That message has never changed. It has always been the shepherds that God has given the responsibility to proclaim that message and then you go out and bring your friends to hear it. And what has happened as a result? The result is that what Jesus said would happen has happened. He said, I will build my church. No new techniques. No new radical methods. Proclaim the gospel. In seminary, one of our favorite hymns, and appropriately so, we we sang it this morning, is Rise Up, O Men of God. We love this hymn because for those of us in training for the gospel ministry, it's not just a hymn, it it is a calling. But it was written in 1911 by an American Presbyterian minister named William Merrill. And it was composed specifically for the Presbyterian Christian Brotherhood movement and it was aimed at waking up spiritually apathetic men in the church. Merrill felt that from a human vantage point at least, the church of Jesus Christ was only as strong as her men and her leadership. Yes, Christ guaranteed the success of the church. I will build my church. But from a human view, in, in many respects, the church was weakened. And so Merrill calls on men to rise up to face a task that seems impossible. And this fits well, in fact, with the warning Christ gave to the church at Sardis in Revelation 3 when he said, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. And so Merrill gives this clarion call, rise up, O men of God, the church for you doth wait, her strength unequal to her task. Rise up and make her great. And how are the men of God to make the church great once again? The final verse says how to do this. Lift high the cross of Christ. Tread where his feet have trod. As brothers of the Son of Man, rise up, O men of God. What makes the church great? Is it a nice facility? Is it programs? Is it music style? No. At the core, the church will only rise to the level that her men will rise to. That's it. Rise up, O men of God. The church for you doth wait. Her strength unequal to the task. Rise up and make her great. You pray for God to raise up godly men in this church and in every church that would honor the word of God. And that's how the gospel will spread until one day we're done. And Christ returns and the great shepherd takes over. What a great day that will be. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for this time in your word. It's so good to return to the basics and to think about just understanding the foundational truths of how you've made your church. And Lord, we're thankful to you for the shepherds in our lives. Every person here who has come to faith in Christ, either directly or indirectly, is because of the faithful proclamation of the gospel from a shepherd in a church somewhere. And so we give you thanks for this. We pray, God, that our shepherds would be faithful, growing, ever learning, ever becoming more like Christ, setting good examples, being fully qualified, being men of the word, men of God. Lord, I pray for our church that they would enjoy and love and cherish being uh, shepherded and learning and growing under the shepherding ministry that you have set up. Lord, we hurt for and we think of churches that lack faithful shepherds. We ask you to raise up men. We ask you, Lord, to put that right. We ask you, Lord, for the men who are 
in a shepherding position yet not being faithful, we pray you would convict their hearts so that you would remove them and that you would bring men who would make the church great once again. We thank you, Lord, for your word. It is so ultimately clear. We pray now as we think most importantly and most highly on the Lord Jesus Christ as we come to the Lord's table. We ask you, Lord, to bless this time of worship together. We pray in Christ's name, amen.